and welcome to the Crawford School and uh, welcome uh, on behalf of the Development Policy Centre. Uh, my name is Stephen Howes and I'm on the faculty here at the Crawford School and I direct the Development Policy Centre. Um, thank you all for coming to uh, our event today. I know we're sort of winding down, heading into exams and term breaks, so it's great that we were able to get so many people here and it shows the uh, extent of interest uh, in, the, in the topic. Uh, so it should be a very uh, interesting um, event. Let me just uh, outline it for you before uh, we get underway. So our main uh, guest and our main speaker today is uh, Jorgen Randers, who has just written this book called Global Forecast for the next 40 years, but whom also many of you will know as one of the authors of the Club of Rome Limits to Growth report in 1972. In fact, uh, Jürgen was just telling me the last time he was in Canberra was in 1974 when he was talking about that report. So it's uh, great to have you back. Uh, then uh, we're going to have uh, a, a, a couple of discussants. Uh, Paul Gilding, who many of you will also know or have read about or have read. Uh, he's the author of the recent book, The Great Disruption. And he's going to uh, provide some perspectives and comments um, about 10 minutes. So I wanted someone from uh, Crawford faculty to provide some uh, remarks, and uh, in the end it fell to me to do that, so I'm just going to, as well as chairing it, provide some very brief remarks. And myself then will open it up for uh, Q&A for about 20 minutes. So we've got uh, all in all uh, an hour and a quarter, uh, and at the end Bob Douglas will close the event, and uh, he's the founding chair of Australia 21, and it's Australia 21 that's made this event possible and that, that approached us to... Um, organise it today, so thank you very much uh, to them as well. Alright, well that's uh, all from me, so um, without further ado, uh, ado, let me hand it over to Jürgen Randers for his uh, talk on revisiting limits to growth global forecast for the next 40 years. Thank you. Good morning. In order to make life simpler for you, I will start by trying to describe my frame of mind. I've spent 40 years working for sustainability in various parts of the world society, and I've failed. The world is no less sustainable than it was when I started 40 years ago, and that's an important backdrop when you listen to me. The second thing is that I have a lumbago which makes me look like I'm as old as I actually am, and, and, uh, which is very irritating for someone who's used to looking much younger. So that's the background. Forty years ago, uh, my friends and I wrote The Limits to Growth. And this book, uh, contrary to what most people think, contain 12 different scenarios, 12 different futures of the world towards the year 2100. Uh, six of those futures were pessimistic futures with some kind of problems, collapse, crisis. Some of, six of the futures were positive type of futures, different degrees of sustainable development. At the time, in 1972, 
we did not know enough to say which of the 12 futures was the most likely. So the main message of the book, for those very few people who actually read the book, uh, was twofold. First of all, the world is surprisingly small. And secondly, there is danger of overshoot. Current systems of governance, you know, democracy and capitalism, would most likely be so slow in the reaction that they would allow the world system to grow beyond the sustainable limits of the planet. Both those conclusions were hotly discussed at the time. I mean, most people thought we were idiots. Today, we know very much more. First of all, we know that growth has indeed continued since 1972. We have had growth in the world economy, in the GDP, in the population, and in the ecological footprint. We are using more resources and emitting more pollutants now than we did in 1972. So indeed, the systems of global governance that we rely on have allowed overshoot. We are now in unsustainable territory. The simplest proof is uh, the fact that we are emitting every year uh, twice as much CO2 into the atmosphere as is being absorbed by the world's oceans and forests. And that, of course, leads to an accumulation of the CO2 in the atmosphere, which leads to increasing temperatures, which cannot go on forever without a very hot and disturbed world. At this point, I need to say, I'm going to show you a number of slides. These slides I show you not because you need to follow them, listen to what I say, and everything you need to hear, I say. I show them to impress you. <laughs> you know, to make the point that there is very, very much more behind my simple words than you think. So, if you want to look at the graph, look at the graph. Otherwise, look at me. Also, on most of the graphs, when they get really difficult, look at the red line. The most important thing is the red line. This fact that we are emitting uh, the CO2 and that we have a load overshoot is, of course, pretty irritating, given the fact that it's technically no problem to solve the climate problem, nor is it particularly expensive. It will postpone income developments by half a year to a year if we chose to solve the problem, which we will not. But uh, it is cheap and doable. So my question is, what will actually happen over the next 40 years? Because we have enough information in my mind at this time to move from the scenario analysis 40 years ago to a forecast, actually to saying that this is the most likely future. And the most likely future is described in the 2052 book, which is also a report to the Club of Rome and is coming in various languages as time is proceeding. This is my educated guess, but it is still a forecast. The motivation to do this is twofold. First of all, I'm getting old, and I'm actually starting to get pretty interested in what will actually happen during my remaining 20 years or so. I should say 15 years or so. <laughs> no. uh, and secondly, it is 
of course, a final wish to kick democracy in the ass, you know, in the hope that someone, you know, in the end would make the right decisions to make this wonderful world of us slightly more sustainable. All the detail for everyone who is interested is available on the web in the information place 2052.info and where you can make your own forecasts if you want to. My forecast is done in the following way. I split the world into five regions, US, China, the rich world, less the US, including you and Norway, uh, and Bryce, the 14 biggest emerging economy, and the rest of the world, the 140 uh, countries. I make forecasts for each of those five regions, add them up, and that's the forecast. So there is regional distribution in the model, which was not uh, the case in 1972. The most important assumptions beyond, uh, or the most important assumptions are basically the following. First of all, I believe that technological innovation over the next 40 years is going to progress at more or less the same rate as over the last 40 years. Secondly, I don't think there will be huge changes in fundamental values and, and preferences. You know, people will continue to pursue the idiotic increase in income, you know, as the overriding goal. And then, uh, thirdly, a large number of new problems will face global society over the next uh, 40 years. You know, depletion, pollution, climate change, growing inequity, social strife, you know, local wars, things like this. And they will be, there will be more of them than it has been in the past. And I assume, importantly, that society will actually try to solve those problems by throwing money at them. So when oil resources get scarcer, you know, we will move to more expensive sources for oil. So basically have to pay more in order to get the same oil stream. When climate change leads to damage, you know, we will repair that damage after the fact. So all of this means that we will be spending more money on trying to solve those problems that are going to uh, move, uh, fall upon us over the next 40 years. The core of my forecast uh, can be presented in the following way. I use graphs for the world. Uh, similar ones exist, of course, then for each of the regions if you want to look in the web. Starting with the population, I forecast that the world, and, and in the graphs, if you insist on looking, 40 years of history to the left, typically UN statistics or World Bank or whatever, and 40 years to the right, my consistent forecast. Things are internally consistent, so no one thing can be moved without moving uh, everything else. Uh, I believe that the world population will peak in 2040 and will be in decline in 2050. It will peak at 8 billion people. This is much below what most forecasters believe. Uh, the reason why I believe this is that I believe that fertility will sink much faster and much deeper than most people think. Fertility is the number of children per woman through her reproductive age. It will fall in the rich world because rich women will continue to choose a job over children, and in the poor world because urbanized women understand very well that it is not as smart having a number of children in the megacity as it was in the 
countryside. Then on the GDP side, this is the second central thing, I think that the world GDP will grow much more slowly over the next 40 years than most people think. Uh, the world GDP is basically the labor force times the output per person year, times labor productivity. And what will happen over the next 40 years at the, in the mature economies like you, me, United States? We will have a hard time achieving high economic growth, that is high productivity growth, because we have already moved our labor force away from those sectors where it's easy to increase productivity in manufacturing and in office work. And most of us are now working in edutainment and in uh, you know, <laughs> uh, schools and in uh, old persons' homes, etc., where it is not you know, easy to increase productivity. And this will aggregate so that you will see in the United States, which is the most leading economy, they will have the lowest growth rates over the next 40 years, uh, if I'm right, and of course I am right. <laughs> and then uh, the second thing, at a quantitative level, you see here that the world GDP is actually starting to level off in 2050. It reaches a peak in 2060 roughly, basically meaning that the world economy will never be bigger than it will be of the order of 50 years down the line. And it's only two to two and a half times bigger than it what is today. If you use traditional growth rates of three and a half percent a year, which has been the fact for the last 40 years, the world economy in 2050 would be four times as big as it is today. So this is a huge lowering of the growth potential of uh, the world. One other reason why we don't we will not have as big an economy in 2050 as most people think, is that most of the poor world will not do better than they have done over the last 40 years. So they will grow at 2% a year, which means that they will be twice as rich in 2050 as they are now. They're now twice as rich as they were in 1970. But of course, they're this poor now, so they will be that poor in 2050, and consequently don't put a heavy burden on, on the planet. The investment share in the economy, you know, the excess money that needs to be done will be used in order to repair damage, will increase uh, as indicated here. Traditionally, society has used a quarter of the economy, economic output has been in the form of investment, meaning something you do in order to sustain consumption in the long run. I think that this is going to need to rise. And you know the repair after hurricane damage is a good example, or the need to in Norway to look for oil, which costs ten times as much to develop as the oil in Saudi Arabia, is another example of this shift, this need to expend more money in order to keep things uh, running. It's easy once you have the GDP to calculate the energy use of the world future, and you see that. Uh, because all you need to do is to multiply the GDP with the energy intensity of the GDP. You see the green line, the historical uh, energy intensity coming down, and I see no reason why that shouldn't continue, because the potential is great. You multiply the two, and you get a world energy use, which peaks in 2040. And I stress this. This is the use of energy in the world, which will grow for another 30 years, but then it will actually 
we reach a peak, so the sum of electricity and heat and fuels at the time will be the highest one, then it will go down, partly because the population is going down, partly because the energy efficiency is continuing, uh, and yeah, those are the two main reasons for this. Uh, the fuel composition is interesting for those of you who are in the fossil industry and for those of you who are not in the fossil industry. This is basically what will happen. Gas will grow tremendously. Uh, coal will grow for a while, reach a peak. Uh, So-called peak oil, in my book, is not a phenomenon. It's basically a long, flat period of the coming 20 years where we use the same amount of oil every year. And it's a declining share of this is conventional oil, and an increasing one is unconventional oil from shale and tar, but that's the, the future of the oil industry. Nuclear, flat to going down, basically moving all the reactors from the United States to East Asia is what is going on. It's only the French and, and uh, some other uh, people in Europe that will keep their uh, reactors. And then you see the renewable energy use uh, basically exploding. But still in 2050, if I'm right, uh, roughly 60% of the energy use is still <coughs> fossil based. Uh, so, uh, and once you have this, it's easy to calculate the future CO2 emissions. You know, because we know how much energy is being used, we know how much is fossil. And you see, here is my forecast uh, of uh, what the endless negotiations that will continue for the next 40 years will result in. We are now shooting for a drop of 50 to 80% in the CO2 emissions in 2050, and my forecast is that it will be zero. So we will finally in 2050 be back to the annual emissions of today. The only difference is that in between they will grow to a peak in 2030 and then they will be coming down. Uh, good. Uh, once you know the CO2 emissions, it's easy to get your friends in America that run the big climate models to calculate what will be the temperature. And the temperature will go, uh, the red line, from 0.8 degrees over pre-industrial times at this time and blast through plus 2 degrees centigrade in 2050. And those of you who are informed, remember that plus 2 degrees centigrade is the commonly agreed danger threshold. So the world is going to go through that without any difficulty. If you run the model further, it peaks at plus 3 degrees centigrade in 2080, which is more or less what is necessary to trigger self-reinforcing climate change. You melt the tundra and you start to release the methane and the CO2, and so the thing takes off. So this is kind of a touch and go uh, scenario. Uh, there are other dimensions. There will, food production will continue up during this period, and it will be what you need to satisfy demand. So everyone who can afford to buy food will do so you see the impact of, of climate change at the end, you know, in the 2040s, you will start to see some land being taken out of production because of climate change. But the yield is going up, most likely, because of a very likely use of genetically modified foodstuffs. 
And then uh, uh, the final graph I'm going to show you makes the fact that the land we need uh, will be uh, available. Uh, we need land for forest, for agriculture, for fisheries, for, for uh, grazing. And that's the green line and the, the wine-colored thing at the top is the total capacity. And again, you see the total capacity keeping up pretty well until you know, over this 40-year period, only at the end, you know, starts the uh, negative impact uh, of climate change on the biological capacity of the globe to have some uh, effect. But of course, the undisturbed amount of land goes down dramatically in this period. So for me, the lover of wilderness, you know, this is not a, a wonderful uh, future. So that's. There you get a general picture. Uh, it's important to st start by saying that there are huge, there will be huge regional dis uh, differences. The world future is not uh, a flat world, which was popular some years ago, that globalization would actually make conditions similar all over the world. Here is, in one dimension, I've taken after-tax disposable income, from 1970 to 2050, the top line is the United States of America, which had a pretty good income development over the last 40 years, particularly the 30 years before 2000. My expectation is that the United States citizen will be poorer in 2050 than he or she is at this point in time. The reason for this is that, of course, first of all, the US is the most mature economy, so they will have the hardest time uh, sustaining uh, GDP growth. Uh, secondly, they have a huge debt which needs to be repaid to the Chinese, which will require a restructuring of their economy in order to produce something that the Chinese likes. And then finally, they have of course a decision system which is incapable of making decisions about anything. And, uh, and not particularly the type of complex redistribution of income and purchasing power, which is necessary in order to get growth going again in the United States. So they are stuck. Uh, OECD less US, which is Norway and, and Australia and uh, the Europe, essentially the same type of problems, but not so strong. We have slightly better government, slightly less debt, and, and slightly less mature. So. My forecast is basically that the sales lady in Marks and Spencers in UK will essentially have the same life in 2050, except that she can no longer buy cheap dresses because of the red line, which is the Chinese, which will five double their income over this period, and at the, in 2050 probably be on average as rich as European uh, people. The reason for this is, of course, the opposite of the United States. The Chinese have a decision system in place which aligns the interests of the Communist Party with the interest of the vast majority of Chinese. You know, to get rich quick is glorious, as Mr. Deng said, and uh, they will do so. And of course, they have a decision system in place which makes decisions clear, strong, fast, according to plan. And so this is what I think will happen. The, uh, the price countries, the, the 14 biggest emerging economies, are doing pretty well. You know, that's the Indonesia's and the Mexico and the Brazil's, you know, who's doing fairly well, and the rest of the world do, does what I said. They will remain poor, you know, growing at 2% a year doesn't get you very far, given their low starting point. Uh, 
what can we say in words? So this is just very quickly to give you the quantitative background. So if we are to describe the world in the mid-21st uh, century, first of all, we see a much, much smaller world than most people expect. There are fewer people and much smaller economic activity than most people think. This means that we will see slow economic growth over the next 40 years. It's not the last, only the last 10 years that will be slow growth in the rich world. It is the next 40 years which will be uh, plagued by the same. Of course, the poorer countries, some of them, the successful ones, will catch up with rich ones like Korea and Japan did in the past and show tremendous growth in this period. But uh, we, uh, up front, uh, will not uh, do that. The third point is that there will be much more poverty in 2050 than most people think. There will be more poverty in the rich world because the average income in the rich world will be even lower than uh, it is now. And there will be, of course, much more poverty in the poor world than most people think because most people have this dream that although we didn't manage to engineer economic development over the last 40 years, we certainly are going to engineer economic development over the next 40 years when the market and democracy finally gets to decide also in that part of the world. Fourthly, interestingly, there will be enough resources. You know, I see no shortage in food, water, minerals, energy, you name it. And why is this? This is, of course, because the demand side is roughly one half of what most analysts use in their analysis. With a smaller GDP and a smaller population, and most of the world still poor at the time, you know, there isn't the need for all of these resources that most people uh, think. And so when you look at all the studies you have read, which then forecasts lack of this and lack of that, look at the demand side first. Yes, it is true that if you want 3 billion people to have their individual car, there will not, not, not be enough lithium for all the batteries. But 3 billion people will not have their own car in 2050. So that's the simple answer to most of those things. Uh, there is, as I said, there will be enough food to cover demand, but not need. You know, there will be starvation in 2050, but the starvation will be for exactly the same reason why we have had starvation over the last 40 years, that the poor people cannot afford to pay the farmers in Ukraine and Russia and Brazil, you know, to put the huge land reserves in those countries under the plow. And so starvation has always been a consequence of maldistribution of income and will continue to be so, which is very important. There is, we are not even approaching the physical limitations of the world, uh, or capacity of the world to produce food. We are probably at one third or one quarter of the ability of the system to sustainably produce food. There will be an increasing frequency of extreme weather and other climate uh, calamities. So, like the Sandy uh, thing last week in, in the United States. Fifthly, uh, the natural world will disappear 
or at least outside the national parks, which will be probably the only place where you can see undisturbed nature. And then you should consider the fact that temperature zones are moving at five kilometers a year towards the North Pole in the Northern Hemisphere and towards the Southern Pole in the Southern Hemisphere, which basically means that it will not take many decades because, mm, before most of the nature that you would like to protect is no longer inside the protected area that you established in order to, to, to do it. So I'm not stressing some of the negative things because most people think I'm an incurable optimist and, and uh, I don't want to leave that impression. The cultural world will be destroyed because it will be infested with hordes of new middle-class tourists. So if you would like to see some paintings in Florence, you have to book you know, three years ahead of time because there is at least 100 million Indians and Chinese in the line before you. And then finally, to be on the positive side, so I'm not so negative, people will have accepted virtual reality as a substitute for the real thing in many areas. Physical meetings, great lectures, travel, live entertainment, tourism, real social contacts, probably most of this, or very much more of this, will be done electronically at the time than is uh, being done now. I don't like that, but uh, the people who live at the time, most likely, are used to that and will like this. What is the fundamental reason for this sad future of mine? So basically, what I'm saying is that the world economy will grow slowly over the next 40 years, but fast enough to trigger a climate crisis. That's, if you need one sentence, what did Jorgen say? This is what he says. And, and uh, so this resembles actually scenario number two from the Limits to Growth book in 1972. There is a scenario there called pollution crisis, and this is actually not a bad description of, of, of what will happen to the world in the 21st century. This is sad, as I've already said, uh, because it would have been so simple to solve the climate problem. All that is necessary is to shift 1% of the labor force and 1% of the capital of the world from dirty sectors to clean sectors. 1% to 2%, it says in the manuscript, and 1% to 2%, I should say. So this little shift is all that is needed. So instead of having people build fossil cars, the same people should be building electric cars. Instead of having people put up coal-fired utilities, they should be building windmills and solar panels. Instead of people putting in gas pipeline, you know, they should be hanging copper wire to distribute electricity. So this is the little shift that would solve the whole problem. Uh, the problem is that this shifting of the investment flows in society from what is most profitable to what society needs is terribly complicated in all but Chinese society. Capitalism will not do this. The market will not do this. It is because those solutions that we need are slightly more expensive than the solutions we currently have. Capitalism is made to allocate money to the most profitable project and will continue to do so. And since what we need is to invest in the more expensive ones with low return on investment, capitalism won't do it. And democratic parliaments that could, of course, change the frame conditions around capitalism to align what is profitable with what society needs 
will not do that. And the reason why is that the voters are notoriously against higher taxes, more expensive gasoline, more expensive electricity. So whenever a, vote, a politician comes up with a wise proposal that would actually force capitalistic investment flows you know, into more expensive solutions, they will lose office. And so basically we have a wonderful situation where we have chosen two systems of governance, democracy and capitalism, that are both short-term of nature and locks humanity onto a wonderful path towards climate crisis. And this, the robustness of that solution is of course what makes it possible for me to make a forecast. Because this thing in my book sits tight. You know, the, the, it's very unlikely that we will change democracy or capitalism over this four-year period. And consequently, we are stuck on the path towards the climate crisis. What needs to be done? I should start by saying this will not be done. But I have given so many talks now where I don't tell what ought to be done that I've learned that it's much better to include what ought to be done. And then people start attacking me for saying that these things won't be done or shouldn't be done, and I totally agree. They should be done, but they will not be done. The first thing we need to do is to slow population growth. That means that we need the one-child family in the rich world. Rich kids, like my daughter, are much, much, much more dangerous than poor daughters. 20 to 40 times. So the one-child family in the rich world should be step number one. What the poor people do doesn't matter compared to what we do, which matters a lot. Second point. In polite terms, reduce the footprint, eliminate fossil fuels first in the rich world. I say ban coal, oil, and gas immediately and in the rich world first. We are the ones that use most of it, and we are, of course, the ones that can easily afford the shift from, from fossil-based energy to, to the renewable alternatives. Thirdly, if you really insist on helping the poor, and here I'm talking to the Norwegian Development Aid, which has spent 1% of our GDP for the last 40 years in well-meaning gestures in order to trigger economic growth in the poor world. You know, if you really insist on helping the poor, the, cheap, the, the best way to do it is, of course, to build a climate-friendly energy system in the poor world for the poor world, paid for by us. So this is build the windmills and build the solar plants and build the hydro dams and the biomass uh, processing activity and just give it to them so that they don't have to choose the cheapest solution, which is coal, for another 30 years and, and you know, emit uh, for another 30 years. Fourthly, I need to include this, although I have absolutely no belief that this will ever be done. This is to try to temper the short-term nature of the nation-state. You know, the only solution I can think of is to establish supranational institutions, and particularly in the climate field, which basically says Australia gets to emit so much, many millions of tons, Norway gets that, US gets this. And ideally with the finance to actually implement those solutions against the will of the local parliament. And then, and population. And finally, and of course, this delegation of decision power actually 
does take place every now and then, like uh, central banks, you know, parliaments have amazingly decided to delegate to the bank to decide how much money to print. And then finally, <clears throat> I think it's high time to start to think about new goals for rich society. You know, and what should the new goal be? And we, we will not be able to, we will not succeed in our old goal, which is to make incomes even higher in the future for our citizens. Uh, so I think we should rather aim for my version here, higher well-being in a world without growth. So just basically ask the question, so we will not have a growing population, we will have more old, we will not have growing after-tax income, we will, it might even fall. How do we then improve the well-being of the population? A question which has many constructive answers, which I will not start getting into because then time flies. But it's highly doable, uh, but it won't be done. Uh, final word of inspiration. So in order to make sure that you go, don't go home uh, depressed. <laughs> I don't like what I see. So I have reported to you what uh, I spent a year uh, trying to figure out what will happen. This is what will happen. I don't like it. And the good thing, there is one good thing about it. It is a cliffhanger in the sense that it only takes a little bit of extraordinary activity, activity beyond what I think democracy and capitalism is going to do, to solve the problem, you know, to actually get rid of the climate problem, which is the real uh, challenge as far as I can see. And this, of course, gives motivation to an old, tired soul you know, to continue the effort. And uh, I hope that I'll get some help in this extraction and that it will come forth and then make my forecast wrong. Thank you. Okay, great. Thanks very much. Uh, you're going to go straight now to Paul, and I've already introduced you, Paul. Okay. So over to you. You've got 10 minutes for your remarks. Thanks, Dave. Um, look, I'm going to just do two things relatively briefly. Um, first is to put Jürgen's um, comments and analysis and forecast into the context of people who think about these issues for a living. So what's the range of attitudes within this area? And then I'm going to give you five minutes on what I think is going to happen, which is a bit different for Jürgen's although not dramatic, um, ultimately, is that the first thing is to say there is a range of views within the people who are broadly defined as uh, ecological futurists or whatever you want to call them, people who think about the system as a whole, economically, ecologically and socially, and people who think about that system over a 40, 50 year time frame. I would say there are three kind of categories of us, if you like. One of which you just heard from Jürgen, which is sort of what I'd call the grinding to a halt forecast. So it's not a dramatic collapse. Um, it is not, she'll be right for all the carry on as usual. It's sort of this messy, not quite a boiling frog, because we don't quite boil, but it's sort of an unpleasant future that we're kind of hoping to sort of muddle our way through. Is that one sort of view? The second two views fall into kind of one broad category, which is that the the forecast about how bad it's going to be are too gentle. That there'll be more systemic crises, whether it's peak oil, climate impacts, financial system overload, whatever it is, there's 
but a much more dramatic impact, and therefore more of a crisis type response. Within that second category, there are two types of people, two types of views. One is, it's all over, thanks to all the fish, which is that we hit the wall via a crisis, we're not capable of responding, and that's the collapse of civilization goodbye. And, and Jacob Lovelock, for example, would be in that category. Who has argued, said a few different things recently, but by and large, he has argued that we're going to have a crisis, we're not going to recover, and we'll end up with, you know, the optimistic view is 500 million people, the pessimistic view is 200 million people. Um, but either way, it's ugly, it's all over the civilizations we know. That's sort of that hit the wall, crash, and collapse sort of scenario. Then there's a third view, which I would count myself in, in, as part of, which is that we are going to hit the wall a lot harder um, than this sort of more grinding to a halt uh, kind of process because the system is so complex and, and interconnected and because climate sensitivity is much higher than we thought. Right, and I'll come back to this in a moment. But that is that we are going to hit the wall much harder. We are going to therefore end denial about the scale of the crisis. And we're going to have a warlike mobilisation in response. And therefore, we'll go through several decades of a bad group and we'll recover. Right? So, before I come back to those last those points and <clears throat> so describe why I think that's right and what that looks like, let me just quickly um, sort of summarise what is the consistency. Because this is, I think, the most important conclusion of all that is that nobody who does this for a living, nobody who thinks about this either in a kind of political, economic context or in a data-driven analytical context, nobody thinks things will go on as usual. Right? There is nobody who actually believes, who looks at it, that the assumptions that are made by virtually every corporation, every government and every institutional body in the world are right. Like, everyone thinks they're wrong. We won't have 3.5% growth indefinitely. That, that we won't suddenly find some sort of faith-based market fundamentalism solution to all this and it'll basically sort of talk out. There is no chance of business as usual occurring. And yet, every institution and every government assumes that we're going to. And that, to me, is a really important shared conclusion, is that we're not planning for any, or to any of the most likely or any of the almost certain scenarios in this area, and therefore we're in for a hell of a shock at some point. Political shock, economic shock, sort of social shock, that the assumptions about growth the assumption that our incomes will keep on increasing, there's this, this great promise made to the people of the world that you'll keep on getting better, the kids will be better off than you, life will always get better, are actually fundamentally wrong. And that is, I think, a really important point. Because what everyone's saying in this space is that that's not going to happen. Right? And we're not preparing, as I said, for any of the alternatives. Let me give you very briefly my, my view of the world, um, which is in my book, The Great Disruption. And, and if anything, I've sort of become more convinced since writing it about this being right. Um, although I am always sobered reading Jürgen's work, who actually does a, you know, has been right for the last 40 years, so it's sort of a, a great person who would think he's wrong this time. But I still think he might be, I hope. <laughs> um, and, and as Jürgen and I have discussed many times, it is absolutely very hard to differentiate what you want to happen from what you think is going to happen. Right? I mean, the future is not a data-driven thing. Whatever Jürgen tries to tell you, tries to tell you. The future is an uncertain thing because you don't know what's going to happen. So you can't be sure. Therefore, your biases inevitably drive you right, towards anything more than 12 months out um, being certain. I mean, that doesn't apply to climate science, which is a physics and chemistry question, but it does apply to anything involving human responses, which is what this is about. So it's inherently uncertain. Um, but, well, I must, before I tell you what my view is, tell you that the data is all on Jürgen's side. Um, what I think is going to happen is that I think because of climate sensitivity, 
because of the complexity of the food system and because of financial system overload in particular debt, that we are going to hit crises a lot more frequently, frequently than, we can, than we're expecting. But now, I can't say whether that's food and uh, oil, oil, peak oil prices caused by Middle East unrest, whether it's a food crisis leading to hundreds of millions of refugees, whether it's just financial system collapse because the thing is so damn complex, nobody knows how it works anymore, and any of these things could trigger a response. One, several, or all of these things, I think, will trigger a much stronger series of crises, and as a result, a, a sort of slow, relatively slow, but like within a decade, end of denial about the inherent logic of this. Just think about what this assumes, and what we're all assuming, and, and I spend most of my time working with large corporates um, and the military these days, which is an interesting kind of combination, and the assumption is we're not going to respond. The assumption is that we're going to stare over the cliff, look at the inevitability of a 50 to 100 year decline of Western civilization as we know it, joined by the rest of civilization into the sewer, and we're going to look at it and not respond. Now, I just, despite many people arguing this is wrong and that we really are that stupid, I don't believe we're that stupid. Uh, I really believe that denial is a natural response to anything that's scary and complicated and requires change, right? Or anything that requires a lot of grief, which this does. Right? And I think that denial is a natural response, but that, but that denial will end. And it will end by a virtue of being worn down by the data and logic and responses over time when they become more manifest in physical events like, like Sandy, the Hurricane Sandy, but also like any other series of financial crises. So I think we are going to end denial and we're going to respond. Then I think it's very important to say the only possible response at that point to avoid Jürgen's scenario, which is effectively forecasting decline after we grind to a halt and then decline in the second half of this century. The only alternative is a, an economic mobilisation of such enormous scale and complexity and speed that it would leave behind anything else we've done in history, except for World War II with a different motivation. And I think that, that's where I think we've had the kind of the big hope, if you like, about potential response, is that the only way to avoid the crisis that we're talking about is to fully eliminate the coal, oil and gas industries in about 20 years. Right? And that, that, that level of, of dislocation in the economy, right? and I say this is a sort of rational, this is a rational economic conclusion, right? is you have to eliminate those industries with incredible speed and scale, and the only way you can do that is with strong government. The only way you can do that is with the support of major players in the economy and the population as a whole. So it does require an astronomical level of change that we currently can't imagine. However, I put to those people who, which is virtually everyone I've talked to about this, who say that's impossible or won't happen, is that you have to imagine the alternative of a conscious, aware, educated, scientifically literate population as a whole, in terms of people who run the world, looking at this alternative in the face and saying, no, we're going to have that happen. We're actually not going to respond. We're going to stand by and let civilizations we know it go into economic and social decline and do nothing in response. So that to me is the only, the only choice that we face. And I find it very hard to believe that we would actually logically choose the latter of those given the choice that we make. Therefore, within the sort of this world of weird people, I am counted as an optimist um, in terms of how we respond, but a pessimist in terms of how fast it's going to come on in terms of how far those changes are going to occur. Um, Jürgen, who within our little Cambridge University community has always been counted as a pessimist, um, is now actually positioned internally as the optimist. Um, because he thinks the crisis won't be anywhere near that bad. So with those cheery words... <laughs>
Uh, well, thank you very much, Paul, uh, for those uh, really useful remarks. And uh, before, I'm sure you're all dying to ask lots of questions, but uh, I'm just going to make a few comments before you do. I know it's unusual and dangerous for a chair to uh, also make comments. But I wanted to get a uh, perspective uh, from an economist, and I wanted to ask Jeff Bennett, who's been a uh, critic of the Club of Rome, but unfortunately he wasn't available. And then, because uh, we had very short notice to organise this, I thought I couldn't force it on anyone else, so I'm going to volunteer myself. And I read the two books over the, uh, over the weekend. Uh, I want to, uh, first of all, just say why we're holding this event, um, because it's fair to say this sort of work has been received with some degree of scepticism in the world of economists, which I normally inhabit. But times are changing, and uh, the future is very uncertain. Climate change does hang over us. And weighs on our minds. So even uh, very sober non-Malthusian economists, uh, such as Ross Garneau, wrote in his review of the likely catastrophic impact of unpacked climate change, unchecked climate change. So what the future holds and what climate change will apply for us is pretty uncertain, should be of great interest to us all, and we need attempts like these to help us think through these difficult questions. And certainly my area of development, you know, these issues are fundamental for development. Uh, the second point, that's why we're having the event, and thank you very much for both of you for speaking. The second one is, you know, that when I read these books, I thought, you know, I mean, Paul went into a bit of this, but these really give very different forecasts for the future, right? very different pictures of the future. Uh, Jürgen's main argument is that the next 40 years, it's not going to be too good if you're living in the US, but it's going to be really good if you're in China and some other emerging economies, and there really won't be a climate change crisis or a food crisis. The problems that we face are largely economic, um, Political, you know, declining productivity, political, we can't make agreements. Uh, they're not resource-based. There's a very different feel to it uh, for a, me, a non-expert like me to the Club of Rome. The real environment problems come in the second half of the century. Right? That's where I think you're, you're saying we're kind of leading up to a crisis, but the actual climate change crisis doesn't hit till the second half of the century, whereas Paul, as he says, has got a very different point of view. As I see, he thinks we're already in the crisis. Right? We've already started it, and it's just going to get worse and worse. So he keeps using the World War II analogy. You know, eventually we're going to realise that we're being invaded. And once we realise that, we're actually going to respond uh, on a war footing. Whereas, whereas Jürgen doesn't see anything like such a drastic response right, for the next 40 years. We do a few things. We promote renewables. But uh, emissions are still higher, um, or as high in 2050 as they are, they are today. So it's very interesting to get these two very different perspectives. And uh, I'll leave it to you which one you uh, think is more convincing. That would take much fuller, much more time than I've got now. Um, to me, climate change is a slow onset crisis, so I'm more drawn to the longer term perspective. But I, I just want to add in uh, three comments on the, uh, these presentations and, and as I read through the two books to help uh, our discussion in the rest of this session. One, the only technical point I want to make, I'm not going to comment on the forecast, but both authors do rely heavily on this notion of ecological footprint, which is how many planets you know, our activity is using up, and I think it's like one and a half. And that's sort of evidence that, well, we definitely, we're unsustainable and we, we must be crashing. But, you know, the way the ecological footprint is measured is uh, very misleading, in my view, and I'm not the only one. But a large chunk of that footprint is how much forest we would have to plant if we were going to tackle climate change by planting forests. Right? And obviously that's not how we're going to tackle climate change. So it's a little bit abstract. And if you take that out, our ecological footprint is less than one planet, as uh, Jürgen at least recognises. But I do think that ecological footprint is a deeply flawed measure and it's unfortunate that it has so much uh, prominence in these two books. Second, I just wanted to comment on China. Um, Jürgen is very optimistic on China and that's kind of a bit odd because from a... Not odd, but it's striking because from an economics point of view we've just had this big uh, economics tone, why nations fail, 
and that's predicting the demise of China. And that's because they're, uh, because of corruption and governance, really, and because the alignment between the elite and the ordinary population that you see uh, may not run so deep. So generally, I think the environmental problems facing Asia are very complex, uh, whether it's energy or water. And of course, uh, Asia has a good track record of development, but I'm not quite as optimistic as you, I've got to say, that uh, it's going to be so clear-cut that they will succeed and the uh, US will, will fail. And then the uh, final comment, and sorry to be critical, but I think that's, uh, that's my role today, is that I do think both of these books, but especially yours, Paul, are written too much from a developed country perspective, a rich country perspective, and they are full of the damage that growth does, not only to the environment, but also to, our, to us as people uh, through the promotion of consumerism. And there's much less about the benefits uh, obtained from growth uh, for poor people. So even you admit that at low levels of income, growth uh, can be beneficial. And uh, you know the average income in the world, we, it depends how you measure it, but on Jürgen's graph, it was only $5,000. Uh, it's not a lot of money for the ordinary person. And, and I think you know, for, there has to be a strong recognition that at least in developing countries, uh, there needs to be a lot more growth and that we can't simply share around uh, what we have uh, at the moment. So aid is no substitute for actual development. Uh, well, those are my views I just wanted to uh, throw in, into the mix. Um, uh, thank you for listening to me. I now want to invite uh, uh, Jürgen and Paul here. Uh, Jürgen, I don't know if you want to respond to anything Paul said or I've said, or we'll go to questions and you can, both of you can respond as we go. Questions? Yeah, so questions and, uh, questions and comments, please uh, keep them short. That's only people. So a little time, and uh, just mention your name. Rather more to just in terms of Paul's book, which I've read part of in your uh, scenario. I always feel it's a bit optimistic. I was thinking of that boiling frog, frog syndrome that people just won't realise. Look what's happening with the extreme events we've had both in Australia and the United States. Most of it's not covered in, a, you know, in terms of what it means, in terms of ecological damage in the media. Politicians never you know, just see what's happening. The comment that both Canada and the US didn't comment about climate change in there. Uh, election speeches, so uh, I'm much more pessimistic. I, I can't see why suddenly we're all going to see this danger. We would obviously deal with World War II, but environmental problems are quite different. Mm -hmm. so. yeah, maybe we'll take a few questions and then we can, otherwise, we won't be able to get through everyone. We've just got this side first, yeah, and we'll come across. Well, I was actually with the chair, <coughs> um, yeah. kind of the two questions. One is
times Mark's study. My question would be to both of you, what institutions do you see existing in our current economy that could transition into the, into the futures that you both uh, forecast? Okay, we've got lots of questions. So let me start on, on this question of um, can we respond, or are we just a boiling frog story? Um, look, I, I think it, it's, an, it's an undefinable kind of conclusion, if you like. You can't, you can't really conclusively answer it because there's no historical precedent for this type of crisis. What I always go back to, though, is, is Churchill in sort of 36, 37, when, you know, imagine him looking around that time, and I think it's sort of directly comparable to kind of the environmental movement, if you like, today, where to him and his supporters, the evidence was so incredibly clear. The threat was so data-based, obviously ridiculously urgent and monumental inside, and yet all around him, people were saying eerily familiar things, like the threat isn't that bad, we've actually got time, <clears throat> it won't affect us anyway, it'll come down and go left rather than right. Um, you know, it's really, and in hindsight, we thought, of course, he invaded Poland, right? That was a trigger. Now, the reality is, we could have responded after the first, second, or third, or we could have waited for the fourth country. Right? The English didn't like the French much anyway. And there is this sense where, in hindsight, we thought that was a very clear trigger. In actual fact, it's not like that. To me, denial doesn't work like that. Denial breaks down slowly. And fortunately, to describe the current situation in the US, it gets more extreme denial before it breaks. Right? So the harder it is to change. But basically, in this case, the longer we leave it, the more dramatic the change has to be. Therefore, denial has to get stronger to withstand the evidence as to why we need to change. So I think we're going to see this extreme denialism occurring now. And I sort of say about the US, I was just sort of waiting for someone to propose the end of regulation for the airline industry on the ground that gravity was only a theory anyway. <laughs> and there is this sort of sense where it's absurd, but I think absurdity is actually what happens in denial before it breaks through. And that to me is what I'm kind of relying on. Now, you've just heard a very eloquent exposition of why that's wrong. Um, and the morning clock is actually right. Um, I still don't think it is. I just don't think there's any historical precedent for that. And on a smaller scale, in terms of humans, companies, institutions, we tend to go into denial, we wait for the crisis, we avoid it as long as we possibly can, and then we change. And that's the rationale. But as you say, you can't, you can't prove it. Okay, my comments are the following to Stephen. Uh, Stephen, you
So I think we're just going to have one more round of questions. We're going to be out of time. So Jack Busy has the microphone, and then we'll go to the front, and then to you, your third. Jack Busy, two questions for both of you. Firstly, do you know Brief any questions? Two, do you know any mainstream economists, uh, growth economists, who are kind of part of the futurist debate? I don't. I work in the business. And I'm just curious to know. A completely different, and very much of a brainstorm question. Do you think that the possible outbreaks of superbugs? Um, 
check. Down. 
on the argument and the argument, right? But we, we bought the argument on the grounds that we were all going to suffer. Now, that's a complicated combination of elites and democracy and selling and urgency and crisis, but I think there are examples like that coming, as I think we'll see. You raise a very important point, which I kind of call the next of the China or John Howard and gun control, now, where the right wing of society, broadly, traditionally defined, right, is actually the best agent for change on these sort of issues, that they can deliver their side of politics. And we've seen the alternative recently. And I think this is a, a very uncomfortable truth for people like me, is that if we'd re elected John Howard rather than Kevin Rudd, right, in that election campaign, we would now have an emissions trading system, we would have a conservative side of politics aligned around the importance of that kind of climate change. Right, we wouldn't have Tony Abbott as the next Prime Minister. You know, all of which I think are quite good outcomes. But that, that idea, though, that, that you kind of have to have the conservative side of politics to live a country's change, I think is a, actually a really interesting question. And the Republicans, as you say, have historically done some quite strong things. Your point, Stephen, just one, one quick comment about this point about China. I'd like to argue about a footprint with that another time. But the, the thing about China, that you know, Jürgen's point is that the elites of China are aligned with the people's wishes, and you were quoting someone saying that that's not the case. I think it's not the case in America. I think it's much more the case in China that the elites are aligned with the wishes of the people. Whereas in America, I think the elites aren't at all aligned with the wishes of the people. Therefore, I think revolution and economic collapse in the US is much more likely than in China. I don't, I don't have this sort of um, fundamentalist faith in democracy and markets to sell themselves out. I just don't think it's based on any reality. Oh, Jürgen, you have the last word. Yes. I think this is a wonderful conceptualization uh, and correct one. You know that the, the art is not to convince the people, but to convince the elite. And the only way it is, is you need to threaten their privilege in such a way that they respond. It's interesting, though, to, to note that we have a very good example of this in operation, and we also see that the response of democracy is. This is the EU Commission. European Union is of course run by a meritocracy, which is a wonderful group of people who are there only because they're competent and they run the European Union. And uh, democracies don't like this particularly well, and so the last 20 years they've mm -hmm. spent time building the European Parliament, you know, to gain some control back, you know, from the European Union, which has been amazingly good at forwarding progressive policy, you know, in a number of areas, most relevant now of course in climate area, where had it not been for the European Union, they would not have been at all. But it is interesting to see how most people when they talk about the European Union see this as something that needs to be reined in, you know, in some way or other. And most you know, intelligent people in my country and particularly the intelligence is, is of course solidly in favor of anything that can reduce the power of that elite, which is, you know, in my mind, actually the best thing that can be done on the surface of the earth for climate issues and on the politics. For instance, maintaining peace in Europe, which is no small target. Finally, on the food and energy thing, I think to simplify thinking and still be very correct, it's useful to Remember the generalization that as long as a society has enough energy, they will have enough food. You know, if you have enough energy, you can produce whatever you 
primary culture state. Uh, so that's, uh, that's important. And consequently, a starvation problem, as long as we have energy, is translated into a problem. And uh, so that keeps your thinking straight. Uh, and that was, I didn't get the point to this. Maybe another, another time, because we are out of time, I'm afraid. So I'm sorry. We're, I know a lot of you have more dark glass questions, but we have just run out of time. Please continue the discussion. Before you go, I'd like to call on Bob Douglas, who's the founding chair of Australia 21, to close the event. Thanks, Stephen. Uh, and thank you to Jorgen and, and Paul for what's been a thoroughly stimulating discussion. Australia 21, for those of you who don't know, it is a an organisation that brings uh, big thinkers together to think about big issues for Australia. Uh, and uh, uh, we've done that in a, in a number of areas. Uh, we are going to have a brief mini round table uh, in the next hour and a half with a group of 14 uh, of some of Australia's leading thinkers uh, with Jorgen and, and Paul to, to follow this through. Uh, when uh, I think the optimistic thing about this issue is that it is now at last getting out of the open. This is the third conversation that I've been involved in in the last four weeks. Three weeks ago, the Manning Clark House uh, convened a meeting on the future of Homo sapiens. Uh, and uh, uh, Philip Adams, who uh, uh, opened the batting in that discussion, uh, quoted Pablo Casals, uh, his favourite quote, the situation is hopeless. We must take the next step. And it seems to me that there, there is a next step. The next step is a proper conversation between these and other opposing points of view that, uh, that have been around the traps for a while, but, but which our, uh, our uh, institutions are not currently uh, listening to. Uh, it, it would be hard to imagine a more lemming-like approach than our federal and state governments at the moment that... Uh, uh, are essentially digging our coal out as fast as they can to have it burnt uh, uh, and to increase the greenhouse effect, are uh, uh, backtracking on our solar energy initiatives and, uh, and, and our renewable energy initiatives and are uh, subsidising our, uh, our, uh, uh, those, those initiatives that are increasing greenhouse gases. I'm optimistic that this conversation is going to lead somewhere. And, and uh, it's going to start in the next uh, uh, 10 minutes in the room down the way and the people who have been invited to that discussion. Thank you. And thank you very much. To the <laughs> and thank you very much to the, uh, uh, the school that put this on and brought you all together. And thanks to Steve. Thanks, Bob.
Thanks for coming. Okay, bye.